The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay. The recording. Welcome, is everyone. As usual, the, the Zoom thing will be sort of giving a few minutes for people to arrive and, you know, take your time to flip through and take in the faces of the people, names of the people that are here as we wait and maybe feel a little bit of awe as I do, if you want, <laughs> about, you know, the, that we're coming together in the way that we are, right? For the purpose that we are. It's really a gift. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So nice to looking at your faces. Um, I have a question. Is it Jennifer? I have a question. Um, My husband and I are going to share his computer for the, but I want to go on my own computer for a breakout room. Mm-hmm. Is that is that all right? Because I can't hear you on my computer, but I can hear you on here and in a small group. Is that is that possible, Chris? I think so. You'll just sign in again on another computer, right? I, I'm already signed in on mine, but when it comes to breakout rooms, can you put us in separate? Is that? Yeah, yeah. I'll You'll go- just be signed in again and we'll... There'll be each each box will be assigned to a breakout room. So that means um, yeah. Ying for you, Stephen. You want to look for Stephen and Laura not being in the same breakout group. I see Stephen and Laura. Let me just write it down real quick here. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> Are there any other kind of basic questions? Nothing complicated, but some basic questions while we're giving people another minute or two to join. Feel free to unmute and ask if so. Maybe I'll just take a moment actually to, um, once you're done sort of looking and seeing who you're here with, uh, I just want to invite you to play with your settings um, a little bit. So for me, uh, I like to shift to speaker view um, Mm -hmm. when somebody is, you know, so it allows that person to be seen more fully. um, And then my, I'm not having to do as much processing of all the details of the other people. So it kind of helps my nervous system. The other thing is you can hide self-view if you um, want by clicking on the three little dots in the upper right corner of your um, your picture. Um, just something else to play with that can feel more natural. Um, like when we're sitting with each other in person, we don't typically, we can't see ourselves in the same way as on Zoom. Um, and let me ask, is my volume loud enough as I'm speaking right now? Are you hearing me well enough? Great. Yes. Great. 
All right, so let's see. We still have a few people trickling in. Um, but I'm thinking that we probably should go ahead and get started. Um, and know that some people will, will be coming in as we go along. So welcome to the Eightfold Path program. Yeah. And um, it's an honor to be here with you. And Ying and Chris and Bruni were the, three, the four teachers here today. And in a moment, I'll have each person introduce themselves. Um, today is the official first class. So right view is the um, topic that we'll be covering. Um, there was a previous class in September that was um, kind of an introduction. And if you have questions about how to find that, um, or if you have questions about mentoring stuff or anything else, please send an email to the eightfold path at insightmeditationcenter.org. Um, so we're happy to answer your questions, I think, um, of that nature in that environment. So my name is Tanya Weiser, and um, I'll be here with you from almost, I think, all but one of the classes this year. And really looking forward to kind of hearing you, seeing you, you know, sharing the path with you. Yeah. Um, and let's see. I think let me just ask. Um, I was thinking about this. Chris, would you introduce yourself first? Because you've been with the program longest. Would you would you mind sharing a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'd be happy to. So I'm. Chris Clifford, and I've been practicing in this with IMC since about 1995. Mm. And I've been in this program for, gosh, nine years. This mm. is the ninth year of going through this program. Wow. And I, I just have to say that the path, the integrational power of the path is what stands out to me. That how it really, you know, I, I sat retreats and meditated for many years before that. But when I really got involved with the path, it started to work its way through daily life and through all the parts of my heart, my mind, my motivation, my actions, my speech, and all that got much more highlighted and integrated. And that's what I really most appreciate about it. Mm -hmm. I just love that we get the chance to become what really we really appreciate and love. Mm -hmm. And also that I find that the more honest and open I can be, the more bearable the rest of it is. So I hope you all have a wonderful experience this year. And I get a chance to talk about Right View later, so I'll save that for then. Thank you. Thank you. And then I thought, um, Ying, maybe because you're the newest to the path, I might ask you to introduce yourself next. Oh, yeah, sure. So my name's Ying Chen. Um, so I've been a Buddhist for a long time, since 1995. I'm exposed early on to Mahayana tradition and then later on, maybe for the last 15 years, uh, mostly in Theravada tradition. And, and my entry to the Eightfold Path is quite gradual. You know, I kind of, in the Mahayana um, early encounters, it was through the um, the aspect of uh, sila or um, ethical behaviors, and then over time, kind of grow into different dimensions. 
And I also took this course um, about 12 years ago. And um, just like you all, I had uh, my mentor and, and worked through this. But more and more, I really appreciated this Eightfold Path, um, not only as a, a form of a practice, but also really a way of a living. And so it's really encompassing all aspects of uh, being human, living in a way uh, that is, um, you know, the, the noble ones, right? The noble eightfold path, and and it's very uplifting and uh, really rewarding. I, I hope that you all enjoy this, um, and I loved to be with you all uh, for this year. So, and Bruni, would you introduce yourself now, please, darling? Well, hello everyone. It's such a joy to be with all of you and um, <clears throat> to be once again with um, some of the uh, teachers and some some people that I know that are here for maybe the second, the third, or the fourth time mm. uh, practicing the Eightfold Path. Um, is being transformational uh, to engage in it. I started, like Yin was saying, um, as all of you. Um, and at the beginning, you know, it was kind of a learning at a conceptual level and then realized that it was much deeper than that. Mm. And um, going really into embodying the teachings and realizing also that it's a way of life. And that is a way of really um, reaching peace, more peace and ease with how things are in, in, in my life and in the world. So, um, and I will say that one aspect that I love and that I'm looking forward to in this year too, is how it is that Buddha Dharma Sangha uh, is cultivated, you know, spiritual friends in the path. Mm. And just sharing our learnings authentically and humanly. You know, we're all humans. We all have all very common, more common experiences that we think. So um, I wish you uh, a fruitful year, however you engage in it. And um, we'll see how it unfolds. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here, Bruni, Ying, and Chris. Really, it's uh, quite an honor to be here with you and everyone else. Yeah. So we'll start with a guided meditation, um, which Ying will, will guide us in this morning. Whenever you're ready, Ying. Yeah. And um, maybe everybody should make sure you're muted. I, I know there's a few people who aren't Um so I, maybe I just will do mute all, Ying, and if you're muted, just unmute yourself. I think that there are a few people in the waiting room, too. Oh, I thought I turned off the wait. Um, are you able to see them? Because I don't see the wait room. I don't either. Okay, well, for, for some reason, I do see them, but if they're in, they're... They're, they're, they may be in already. So okay. can, you, can you hit admit 
Ernie? Yeah, I, I did. Okay. Um, yeah, because it's still showing. Uh, e. Foster and Carrie Pritchett. Hmm. Are you in? Yes. Oh, okay. oh, right. Okay, so it could be in between uh, when I turned it, uh, turned okay. the weight room off. There may be some lingering things. Okay. All right, welcome. Uh, so we'll do a short guided sit uh, to begin with for today. And so if you um, are able to find a sitting posture that supports you, um, just take a few moments to move your bodies and, and maybe find um, a particular way of sitting that uh, brings a sense of ease and uh, settling. We'll begin this meditation by just kind of allow our attention to settle at the lower half of our body. Maybe feeling the body being settled on the chairs or on the floor. And sense of a support and grounding. And then at the same time, feel some sense of energetic uplifting as well through maybe a slight straightening of your torso. Allow this both the form of settling and grounding and the form of uplifting energy to be present in you. If long, deep breath can bring a, a little more intimacy to here and now, feel free to take a few long, deep breaths. And as you return to your normal breathing, And becoming aware that you're sitting. Allow mindfulness to be front and center. Can have a global awareness of the fact that there's a body sitting here.
Sometimes as we just began the sitting, there can be a, a sense of lots of a bubbling energy in the body. You may feel vibrations tingling on the legs or the torso. Maybe movements of the breath. We're simply inviting Awareness to see and feel what's happening here and now. I'm fond of the Chinese translations of this first path factor, the right view. The translation of the view is a character that is the the literal direct meaning of it is seeing or seeing something you're seeing. And the first character uh, that is being translated in Chinese and can have the sense of a right or wrong kind of a right. It can also have the sense of being direct. And so the experiential sense of this path factor, right view, is to see directly what is happening here and now. And letting go of the stories of your experience. And drop into the direct seeing. And direct sensing and feeling.
resting your attention in the body. the mind wandered away and simply noticing the mind has wandered away that's enough to be back in the present moment It can be helpful to rest awareness in the bodily sensations or the breath. Tuning in to any sense. Ying, I'm sorry I accidentally muted you. Sorry. 
Noticing if there's any sense of ease and quietude in your experience. Noticing any struggles that you may have. They're wanting your experience to be some other way. You may want to get somewhere else, somewhere else, rather than here. without having to shift and change any of this dynamics. We simply become aware and seeing that this are happening.
I'll just say that I'm going to be your Zoom host today. What it means that if you have any technical challenges or uh, issues um, uh, during the session, you can chat with me. And I'm the IMC Zoom 3 host. Um, and you feel free to chat with any of the other teachers as well. Um, but I just want to let you know that I, I'm here to support you with any of the Zoom issues today. Thank you, Ying, for the guided meditation, um, the support in practicing being here, and also for, you know, being here to support the container, um, both. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about um, right view, doing the sort of the first half of the talk on right view, and then we'll do some breakout groups. And then Chris Clifford will give us a second talk on the second part of right view, and then we'll do another breakout group. So that'll be kind of the bigger flow of the day. So as Yin mentioned in her meditation, um, what is it, what does view mean? It, it turns out that in lots of languages, it, it has kind of a double meaning. So there's the, the seeing with one's eyes, and there's the philosophy or the orientation, the belief system, the lens. In both, I think it's a way of looking, the direction we're looking or the way we're looking. And one of the, um, I love this combination because I think about, um, you know, we can, if we, if we climb to the top of a mountain, we can look out and what we'll see will depend on the direction that we're facing. So assuming we're in a mountain that's close to the coast on the west coast, and we look out and we're looking for the ocean, but we're facing the east, we're not going to see the ocean, right? So we need to reorient, redirect. And a lot of Dharma practice is about reorienting the other part of this is this idea of a perspective if we can kind of see things pretty directly without a lot of filters and opinions and sort of getting closer to what we're going for in the dharma the sort of connection to kind of direct Direct experience. But it's also really possible to turn in the right way and to look at the ocean. But if we're wearing pink sunglasses with pink lens, it's going to alter the perspective of view, the literal seeing that happens. Just in the same way as a particular worldview, cultural view, philosophical view, opinion will filter or alter what we're seeing when we're looking directly at our 
our experience. So it becomes really important to start to recognize these filters, these perspectives, philosophies, identities, ways of sort of seeing so that we can, you know, in the practice, let them go and come more directly into alignment with a kind of a felt sense connection, a rawness of of seeing things. So another part of the path factor name is right, right, right view. And um, let's take a minute with that word. And just in that word, we could have all kinds of cultural views, um, perspectives, associations, and ideas about what right means. And that can kind of get a little bit tangled up for us sometimes, for some people, maybe not for all. But I just want to sort of, it's a great example of how, you know, if you look at right view and you bring to it like, yes, I'm right in my view, that's really different than the right that's being hinted at here, which would be more like if I need to put a screw and a piece of wood, the right tool would be not a hammer, but a screwdriver or a drill, right? So that it's like sort of that idea of also if I'm standing at the mountaintop and I want to see the ocean, the right direction is to look in the west. It's another translation of right and something that, re, you know, I, um, Gil was talking about recently is good, beautiful, right? Something, there's something quite beautiful, wholesome. So we've got this rightness that's like what is useful, what is wholesome, what is helpful for this particular situation. And then with the wrong view, um, kind of the other synonyms for that might be things like, well, obviously the hammer isn't effective at getting a screw into the board, right? Could also be considered unwholesome, harmful, you know, ill. It's unsuitable, undesirable. So the wrong view to see the ocean is to look to the east. The right view is to look to the west. And the, right, the Eightfold Path starts with right view uh, because it's the, this is the way that we're seeing, the way that we're going to engage, and it requires wisdom and discernment. And there's two particular frameworks that the Buddha offered that are like those orientations maybe um, to help us find right view. And they're the Four Noble Truths and the idea of cause and effect, which Chris is going to talk about in detail. And I'm going to focus on the Four Noble Truths, but in particular, I'm going to focus on the first of the four. And the Four Noble Truths is, are that there, there is dukkha, 
And dukkha is a word that can mean a whole range of things from unsatisfactoriness to discontent, to stress, to suffering, right? And so there is dukkha and it is to be understood. The second noble truth is there is the cause of dukkha, which is generally considered clinging. The third noble truth is dukkha, the end of dukkha. So dukkha ceases. And the fourth is the path that leads to the complete cessation eventually, of of dukkha. And that's the Noble Eightfold Path, which is to be developed. So there is dukkha is to be seen and understood. There is the cause of dukkha, which is to be abandoned. There is the ending of dukkha, which is to be realized. And then there is the path leading to the ending of dukkha, which is to be developed. There's um, some, many places you will read that um, essentially the, the purpose of the path is to bring the end of suffering. And, and that's, that's one very important aspect. You know, and, and I guess what I would say, and I'll take, talk a little bit more about this, is the end of suffering, what's in its absence? What happens? Because that too is an aspiration, me what happens when we we aren't suffering i'm touched i'm actually touched about giving this part of the talk today and to talk about dukkha and our relationship to it and because for me the absence of dukkha is is beautiful you know and i have a reverence for that experience and it's um can be seen, maybe reflected in an open heart, in generosity, compassion, a clear and direct connection with others, with life. And it's the absence of ill will and covetousness and not being ignorant to everything that's going on. So in my in my time of practice, my relationship to suffering or dukkha has changed a lot. Um, what I have come to see over and over again is that when I can recognize the arising or the, the presence of suffering or dukkha, that it's almost it's like the beginning of an opportunity for freedom. It's, um, yeah, that I, I, like a sign to me. So I've tr- developed a sense of trust and faith in the arising and the recognition of suffering, that there's a, a path, a way to suffer less. And so sometimes when I have a clear mind, when I see suffering, I see the arising of happiness. There's this sense of possibility, of freedom. And it's a very different response than when I used to see suffering. A lot of, initially, when I would see suffering, there was a lot of contraction. And, oh, no, and I'm clinging, and ouch, and this is no good, right? But if I see 
see suffering and I know that this is the beginning of the path to freedom, that happiness and faith can arise. And that energy is very uplifting and supportive. The joy can bring energy with it to, to, to kind of move forward in the, the releasing of the, the suffering. So I've come to kind of relate to dukkha as um, a signpost, a flashing exit this way sign. I've described it as the rumble strips on the side of a freeway. You know, in Half Moon Bay area, there are these rumble strips. And if you're looking out at this beautiful, gorgeous view and you aren't paying attention, your car starts to move off the road, your tires hit the rumble strips. And thank goodness, right? Because they wake you up. They keep you on the path. They keep you on the freeway. Yeah. And to me, this is how I have come to see, you know, the arising of dukkha is like, oh, thank you. (laughs) Another way to think about it is, you know, it's a beautiful, inherent, built-in feedback system. So, you know, if, if we're doing something with our body, let's say our hands, we're working with something, and we get a cut... There's pain. And that's the the natural feedback system that we've been hurt. And it it says, okay, I need to stop, right? I need to stop. I need to look and see what's going on here. And attend to it. And stop doing what I was doing that caused the, the harm. Right? And so the idea for me is, well, this is the same. The dukkha of, you know, our lives when it happens is feedback. It is important. So stopping when I recognize suffering is becomes really important. Somebody once um, at IMC created a bunch of bumper stickers that said, I stop for suffering. I like this idea of having, you know, bumper sticker, I stop for suffering, right? And and my suffering and yours too, yours too, our collective suffering, the suffering of our world, not to ignore that suffering too. Yeah. So... Um, so I'm talking about dukkha as feedback, a guidance as consequence, as stress, a lack of ease, tension, tightness. It can be very subtle, you know, under ordinary circumstances, unrecognizable to something that is, you know, almost numbing and in stopping in its one in its tracks because it can be so painful. Yeah. Resistance, discontent, irritation, dissatisfaction. So it can be helpful also, um, maybe not to just sort of like, oh, no, there's all this dukkha and I have to stop every time it comes up, but just sort of like relax around that. 
just be like, okay. And, and then there's another teaching on dukkha, which is kind of give us a, some different categories. So just start with what shows up for you in your life. But if nothing's showing up, you might try looking in these different ways. There's three types of dukkha, pain of pain, pain of change, and pain, pain of mental construction. So pain of pain is, um, you know, often like feeling pain around our pain, suffering because we hurt, suffering because the cut hurts or because we're, you know, clinging to something and we're not getting what we want and we have pain around that. Pain of change has to do with impermanence and unpredictability in life and sort of change in relationships in the world and family configurations in our age, all these kinds of things. And pain of mental construction is a huge source of dukkha, <laughs> you know. And this is pretty much about how we think about things, the mental construction and mental formations, you know, that are connected to the maintenance of our bodies, of things, and this kind of idea that, Things need constant care, constant upkeep. It's the things that keep us worried about the future or being remorseful about the past. And, and rumination, kind of this chugging going over and over, which is a really significant leading cause of depression, actually. So just to give you a few uh, simple examples from my personal experience, um, what I would say a pain of pain is a pretty simple. I think example for me was one time I, as an adult, I went to go get an immunization. And for whatever reason, I was like uh, bracing and tightening my muscle at the anticipation. And so my muscles tightened when I got the immunization and boy, did that cause a lot of physical pain that lasted way longer than if I had just relaxed and received the injection. Pain of constructing thoughts, you know, this is something um, that I see in myself, you know, and um, it's, you know, let's see. Um, I don't actually understand the example I wrote here. So, um so I'm just going to, you know, we're, we can just create all kinds of things and, and constructions in our minds. And it's, it's exhausting and consuming, you know. And then there's the pain of change or impermanence. So a big example for me was clinging to the idea or having this idea, a fixed idea that, you know, my marriage was not vulnerable to having affairs happen in it. I just thought, no way, never happen, but it did, right? And it made it all that much more painful for me because I had this really, I was really clinging to this identity of a person who would not be in a relationship where somebody would have an affair, right? So it led to a lot of extreme amounts of, of suffering, right? Because in particular, I was like, you know, in denial about it happening, couldn't be happening because I didn't believe it could be happening, right? And then there can be any combination of any one or all three of these kinds of dukkha. Yeah. 
So I think I'll end just sort of referencing the Arrow Sutta, the Salatha Sutta, Samyutta Nikaya 36.6. And we've probably, many of us have heard about the Arrow Sutta, right? So the someone gets shot with an arrow. And, you know, that's just sort of what happens in life. And then we say, oh, I'm such a bad person for being here and getting shot with an arrow. And that's another arrow and the ways that we can just keep adding. So the sutta says, the blessed one said, when touched with a feeling of pain, the uninstructed run-of-the-mill person sorrows, grieves, laments, and beats his breast, becomes distraught. So he feels two pains, physical and mental, just as if they were to shoot a man with an arrow and right afterward to shoot him with another one. So he would feel the pain of two arrows. In the same way, when touched with a feeling of pain, the uninstructed person, you know, sorrows and grieves, laments, beats their breast, becomes distraught. So he feels two pains the physical and the mental. So just, you know, Gil has a super simple example of this. He talks about walking down the sidewalk, stubbing his toe, hurts. And then he says, oh no, what if somebody saw me? I'm a meditation teacher. I'm supposed to be mindful, right? I'm, I can't let anybody see me tr- stumble. And that's the second arrow, right? And so on and so forth. We continue on this you know, it can be many, many, many arrows coming our way. So the idea is, you know, if we have this other relationship with suffering and see it as a, you know, a signpost, a flag waving, guidance, maybe we can notice a little sooner that we're hurting or things are getting harder and we can just kind of stop and pause Take some breaths. See if we can create some space. See if we can look at this. See the view that we're looking at this from and shift. So we have the ocean in front of us and the big sky and lots of room. Yeah. So I hope that's helpful. Okay. So I'll pause there. And I'm going to invite Bruni to come in and she's going to guide, you know, give us some information about doing breakout groups and set us up for, you know, discussion around this kind of topic. Bruni. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you for uh, those reflections on wise view. And um, now we're going to go into breakout uh, sessions to have an opportunity to share um, <clears throat> some, <clears throat> oh, excuse me, I haven't talked in, in a while, um, uh, to share some reflections, to build community, to, um, to settle in with, you know, what you're listening to and receiving and um Please know this is um, an opportunity that it can be <clears throat> it can be beneficial if if you speak or not or 
there is not like a rule that things have to be a certain way with deception <clears throat> of some etiquette. So let me give you some tips in terms of how to interact within the group. We're going to have, um, Ying, we're going to have uh, groups of five and maybe uh, four to five. Yeah, four to five. Four to five. Okay. Yeah. So, <clears throat> and then each person will have three minutes to share. So you will come together into a break group. And as you come together, know that you're also practicing. You know, we're, um, we have an opportunity to bear witness, to listen mindfully. It's part of the practice. It's practice in daily life. <laughs> listen to what people will be sharing. So there's going to be person one will be sharing. And then we're going to listen uh, without Crosstalk, no crosstalk, no conversation, but taking in, taking in this person, taking in the words. And then um, after the three minutes, and I will send a reminder and I will ring the bell at the three minutes <clears throat> for the next person to go in and, and take the turn. Then the next person will speak. And the same thing will be in silence. We will take in this person. And then speaking mindfully to being aware, feeling the body as you're speaking and listening to yourself. <clears throat> and then the next person and then the next person and then the next person. And then for the groups that have uh, four persons, um, you can continue. You can start again. Maybe there was something that was not said or something like that so you have three additional minutes or you can take a break however you want to do it but the important thing is that each person has enough time to share okay so um is there are there dear teachers anything else you want to add to that anything or um, I think you said, Bruni, that you were going to ring the bell between questions, but they won't be able to hear a bell. So you could send a message through the oh, ch chat. That's true. I will. Yes, <clears throat> I will send reminders. Next person. Next person. Thank you, Tanya. Okay. So uh, whenever we are ready, our dear IMC host, Zoom host, will send you. You haven't said the question yet. Oops, look at me talking about speaking <laughs> mindfully. Thank you. <laughs> you see, we're all practicing. Thanks for us. We'll yeah, there we go. So glad I'm not doing this alone. <laughs> okay, so the question is, <clears throat> how might you practice with I break for suffering? Again, the question is, how might you practice with I break for suffering? Taking a break, taking a stop for suffering. To see it. Um, okay. So, um, so we total have about 15 minutes for this uh, whole thing. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. So 
Uh, I'm going to open the room since uh, here, here you go. I think it should be done. Yeah. I think you should think go ahead, Bruno. Let's go yeah. ahead. Yeah. Okay, so we have um, we have a few minutes to do some harvesting here of the community. And so the invitation now is to <clears throat> to have, um, you know, some of you that uh, would like to to share um, what did you learn, what, what was talked about in your group, something that you would like to share with the rest of the community. This is, you know, almost like, it's almost like an act of generosity just to share um, what, you know, what did you hear? What got your attention? And briefly, with ease, we have maybe five, seven minutes to do this. So the way to do it is if you go into, <clears throat> into the chat and if you can raise your hand, uh, the blue hand. Yeah, that's in participants, if you want to do it that way. Okay, yes, in participants. So we have, oh, wonderful. So you go to participants. So I see a set of hands already. Okay, great. Shall we just go with the hands raised? Yes, let's do that. So let's see. Uh, Cherry, please. Thank you. Um, this could be a misunderstanding either of what Tanya was sharing or my own pre uh, previous learning. But I thought the dukkha that we're trying to liberate ourselves from uh, – is all mental at some level, right? I mean, I could stub my foot or break my foot and there's pain there, but I personally don't call that suffering. I call suffering, it has to do with my reactivity or the mental aspect of how I react to life's events. So it's more of a question. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Tanya, I can, I can just respond, but since, uh, he made reference to the talk, do you want to respond or? Um, no, I think you're right, Jerry. I think that maybe, um, the part that you're, uh, the pain of pain, like the different kinds of dukkha that maybe my definitions there were, um, made that a little bit confusing, but no, they're absolutely, we can't, it's unavoidable to have mm -hmm. physical pain, right? It's the optional pain that we're looking to be liberated from. Thank you. Yeah. How we relate to it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that question. Let's see. Um, Jaisha. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much. Um, I was, I was sharing with the group that, uh, I've been doing the readings and listening to, to Jill's talk, and it seems that conceptually, I do understand what I'm reading and what I'm listening, but it does doesn't stick. You know, it does. It's like passed through me, but I I don't like when I'm having an insight that I can take it in. This is different, and it's been like a unique thing that has happened on my past. So it feels gives me the feeling I don't know if I'm doing it well. You know, it gives me some doubt. I guess. 
But then today, as I was listening to the small group uh, sangha, suddenly I had this realization because I was struggling. Why do I? Why don't I understand this? You know, I was I was having those thoughts, and trying to let it go, but came back. And then suddenly I said, "Well, would it help if you know? Maybe is it clear view? Because maybe it's in the words. Is it is the words clear view?" Oh, oh, the right way of understanding this. If I say, I want to see something clearly, like, like something in my experience, like I was, I was realizing I was in pain, and then suddenly I realized, okay, this is pain, and that for me is seeing clearly. Would that be something closer to right view? I just want to try to know in the experience beyond listening to the talks and reading, and I'm kind of struggling with trying to get it. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, there's, you know, I just want uh, first to say to reassure that these questions may come up over and over again in our practice through all our lives. And that, um, and that, yeah, when we see sometimes when we notice that, okay, this is like, like uh, Tanya was saying, when we, when we see that there is something going on, we call it, we call it, um, but we don't, we don't cling to it. We don't add is, we don't identify with it in a way that we say, you know, this is mine. You know, we don't add the story like Tanya was saying, then it could be wise view. Um, and that there may be more conversation about that later, but, um, Yes, that's part of that understanding. And, but there are many different ways. And as we go deeper into the practice, Jaisha, um, we embody, we embody the, it will, it, it just trust the practice and that, you know, set the conditions for the learning and it will unfold in that way. But yeah. So if I say clear view, if I say clear view, if that word works for me, is that okay to call it like that? I will, I will let, you know, I will let Chris to talk about that just to give an opportunity to someone else because she's going to talk about the other noble truths and whys and, and then uh, maybe we can include there like wise and right and clear seeing, clean, clear view can can be added in other ways. Um, okay. Thank you, Jaisha. What else came up in your groups? And let's see, Nan- uh, well, let me just see. Just Got make Randy, sure can... Nancy, and Sherry. With okay, Nancy. let me, I'm just, okay, Randy. I think Randy. Randy. Mm-hmm. Did, did you? Yeah, you have to unmute and then speak. Hi there. Uh, in our group, when we were talking about. We just lost you, Randy. Yes, I am unmuted. I'm sorry. Maybe. Yeah. 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 Figure out what's wrong. Yeah. Thanks. Uh. Okay. So, um, Nancy. Okay. 
I, I think uh, this is something that Tanya um, said in her talk uh, was that it was such a relief to know that I'm not the only one <laughs> that sort of, uh, not struggle, but it, this is a challenge for me. Right view is a challenge for me. I, I personally think that um, if other stuff comes in, I'm doing it wrong. And I forget this is a lifelong practice. And uh, it's not something you can flunk at unless you uh, just quit altogether. So I was just real, um, real relieved and happy to learn that um, we're more alike than I thought. (laughs) So I just thank you guys. That's fantastic, Nancy. I bet you just made my day just to acknowledge that because, you know, that's like, oh, thank you. <laughs> Me too. Indeed. Indeed. Um, uh, okay. So maybe one more. Uh, Laura? Thank you. Um, thank you. I appreciate it hearing about the causes of uh, you know, clinging, the impermanence, and kind of the obsession of the mind. Uh, when life, my question is that uh, when I can understand, I don't understand the the difference, like, let's say, let's say you're a mother and you lose your infant child. Let's just say that happens. So you are going to be suffering. And there will be that clinging, you know, the loss. And then the upset, you know, there is that. How does that fit in with this teaching? If you could address that, or if I should just wait and listen. I mean, I'm a little unclear about that. It seems like that is an appropriate or part of the thing, part of life, you know? Yeah. And thank you. Yes, yeah. Lauren, that, yes, um, like, like this is, um, and so many losses that, uh, People are going through where we are going through these days too. So, and uh, Tanya, jump in if any time here. But uh, what I would say is, like you said, you just named the first noble truth when you said, "This is this this is this is suffering. This is this is a loss. This is it is." And so that acknowledgement. That acknowledgement without rejecting it, that is a way, that is a way to approach wise view. This is suffering. This is a loss. Now, when we, when we dwell in not in our struggles, when we dwell and it's not, you know, there is, there is a place for grief. There is a place for struggles that we have through our own lives, through our lives. And we we come to a way of 
acceptance with it and how to relate to them in a way that doesn't add additional suffering, the optional suffering that Tanya talked about. But yes, we acknowledge, we give it respect and we give it space. And there may be more that will resonate for you, Laura, and for others uh, throughout the program. Thank you, Bruni. That was beautiful. And I had in my notes, but there's one thing I didn't say that I, I really find helpful. It's a little formula. Pain. So pain happens. Loss. Stub our toe. Times. Resistance. Equals dukkha. Suffering. So there's the pain that's unavoidable. Times are... is. When we resist, when we have an attitude that is against it, we don't want it, that is, you know, there's a a relational correlation to how much we suffer. Optional suffering. Yeah. Okay, dear community, dear friends. So now we are, uh, what are we doing now? Let me just consult here with. Let's oh, take we're a, taking a break. Yeah, five, five minutes. Five minute break. Okay. Is that okay, Chris? Yeah. Okay. So two thirty-five, we'll be back. So uh, we'll take five minutes stretch break by our break right now. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> so come on back if you're here. So when in the teachings about right view and what you'll read in the readings and what's found in the suttas, there is this point of view that the Four Noble Truths is an essential part of right view, seeing suffering and what's suffering and what's not suffering. And the other part of it is coming to understand what you might call the conditionality of experience, uh, Tanya used the phrase cause and effect, which is the everyday understanding of what that means. Although the Buddha, it's not so direct as cause and effect. So there's, you know, it's, the Buddha was quite modern and realistic in his understanding of the vast web of conditions that go into enabling anything. Like the condition of having eyes is a condition for seeing and, you know, the condition of being, I don't know able to hear the teachings as a condition of making progress on this. So it's all, it's all, um, it reminds me also a lot of the current scientific understanding of brain plasticity, you know, that things can change. This is the good news part of the teaching. So we talked a little bit about suffering and the cause of suffering. And then the second, the, in a way this relates to the third and the fourth noble truths that it's actually possible to bring an end to this particular experience of dukkha that we're calling dukkha by working on the causes and conditions, the conditions that lead to it internally in our own minds and in society and how we interact with other people and so forth. And so that's the the relationship of the third and fourth noble truths to conditionality is the good news part of it. So our happiness and our well-being depends on the conditioning, the habit structures, and our own deep understanding, how we react to things. So, of course, Laura's question about what if something 
truly tragic, like losing a child happens, there will be grief. And I like, I think there was a very appropriate answer to that. Grief is an appropriate response to that. But we can add on lots of levels like, oh, why me? Why me? You know, how did I, maybe if I had, if only I hadn't, you know, left the window open or something. You can torture yourself a whole lot in addition to the kind of relatively deep and clean and true feeling of grief when something like that happens. So that level of suffering is what we're looking at. For me, a lot of the progress in the path has been coming over 25 years, coming to really understand for myself, what is the meaning of dukkha? And what is the meaning of not dukkha? What is it that we're actually letting go of? I had a very clear experience of, it's kind of silly, but it was very clear to me on a very early retreat that I went to. I had one of these things that's called, this was 25 years ago, a Vipassana romance. In other words, I had a sort of crush on somebody I didn't know and hadn't seen and didn't know anything about. But I it, I just became obsessed with where is this person? Are they looking at me? Where are they now? What am I going to say to them at the end? And I could see that my retreat was just being frittered away with this mental obsession. And then, but I couldn't stop it. And then at some point I went for a walk in the woods and I got up to this beautiful clearing, beautiful blue sky, and I noticed it's gone. And it was just the feeling of freedom from that mental obsession was so clear. And then I went back down and, you know, saw the guy again and the whole thing started up. So I got this very clear vision of dukkha, no dukkha, (laughs) dukkha, and how it was going on in my mind and how it wasn't so simple to just stop it. You know, I I couldn't just stop it. So part of understanding the web of conditions is that, it's a slow process to slowly work through seeing our habits, understanding what they are. The more clearly that we can let in the fact that, wow, this is suffering, rather than entirely focusing on, you know, life happily ever after with this person I don't know. But instead, I can see the suffering in the moment and then the freedom without it. Something in us is learning and not at the pace of our conscious mind that we would like to just be able to fix this. It's not like you can see a habit and change it. It's not so simple. So, But over and over, drop by drop, we're letting in the truth and refining and sensitizing ourselves to the truth of what is, what am I adding to this? What is, where is the bodily contraction? What is the mental belief that's behind this? You know, and getting a little space around around our habits, and slowly they begin to transform. So another aspect of this conditioning is to understand that we're part of the flow of nature. It is our nature to grasp at the pleasant and push away the unpleasant. So sometimes this path is called going against the stream, you know, going upstream. We're really taking a a new look at human conditioning. And it takes a long time to work through this. One of my favorite teachings from the Sutta about right view is about a seed, about how the, the miracle, really, if you plant a bitter gourd seed in the same ground, the same water, the same sunlight, the same earth, you get a very bitter plant. If you plant a sugar seed in the same ground, the same earth, you get... A plant, I'll just read you this section. 
When a sugarcane seed is placed in moist soil, whatever nutriment it takes from the soil and water all conduces to its sweetness and tastiness and unalloyed delectability. In the same way, when a person has right view, which leads on to the rest of the path, the deeds that he undertakes in line with that view, whatever intentions, whatever vows, whatever fabrications, they all lead to what's agreeable. So it's like a person, so right view kind of stands for the whole configuration of this seed that we have. I'm pointing at my head, but it's our whole body, our hearts, our minds. This, this configuration that we are when we come to this practice after a lifetime of conditioning, the experience that we take in leads to certain actions of body, speech, and mind. And over time, if we have the view, the first transformative part of the view is let me look inward instead of always blaming outward, blaming and manipulating the world. So the kind of paradigm of wrong view is let me see what else I can do to try to get the whole world to line up and be exactly the way I think it should and expect it to stay that way and blame other people when it isn't. So that that is not right view. So right view is, hmm, how am I responding to this? May difficult tragic situations happen but what am how am i what's my attitude toward it how am i relating to it how am i tensing up unnecessarily how am i mentally proliferating around trying to fix things that i can't fix or trying to feel that i shouldn't feel the way i feel so all that is right view so it doesn't mean that you have immediately the knowledge of what to do about any particular situation. But it means that you're starting to look at the complexity of this whole web of conditioning inwards and how we interact with other people's webs of conditioning. And you begin to understand, begin to see people as webs of conditioning. When you see how hard it is to change your own habits, maybe you're more forgiving of other people who have a hard time changing their habits. And so gradually, this whole web of conditioning becomes something that's workable. It's more workable with right view than, uh, you know, unhelpful views are many, you know, like I have to get the whole world perfect before I can stop worrying, you know, or before I can relax or before I can allow myself uh, to just go for a walk in the park or something. So so many views, views of blaming yourself, blaming other people, rather than looking at the conditions of nature that have unfolded over the whole history of humanity and all of our lifetimes as coming to this moment. And in the present moment is when it's possible to inject new stuff into the web of conditioning. So how you react has to do with what habits are you reinforcing and what, uh, what patterns are you, what beliefs are you once again buying into? How are you filtering what you take in of what's happening by your views so that you're not letting in fresh information? And the typical ways that we do this are by not seeing the suffering. So our minds focus on something like, wouldn't that be a great relationship to have forever? Ignoring the fact that, you know, it's just for so many reasons, not realistic. And then, you focus on that imagined happiness and you don't notice you're wasting your whole retreat obsessing and suffering, right? So if you can turn and notice that 
and then appreciate the freedom of that. If you get a little moment of that, gradually it begins to untangle that web. So, um, yeah, the, then the whole path, really this fourth noble truth is about, it's like eight different mirrors or eight different practices that we can use to start to see more deeply into what is this conditioning that we have and how can we skillfully work with dismantling it, reconditioning it to be more wholesome. So often the, the, the question that the Buddha asks is what, ask us to ask is what, when I do it, leads to long-term happiness and well-being for myself and others. So this long-term, short-term is another interesting factor to start working with. We're very conditioned in our animal nature to go for short-term gratification, right? Addictions. So anything that was pleasant before, we want it again. Anything that was the least bit unpleasant, we don't want anything to do with again. So part of what we can start to disentangle is the difference between immediate pleasant and unpleasant, the actual non-correlation between immediate pleasant and unpleasant and long-term wholesome and unwholesome or skillful and unskillful. So this, this pair of words, kusala and akusala, are important in right view. They're translated two different ways in English, typically wholesome and unwholesome and skillful and unskillful. And both of those are beautiful. Wholesome really calls to mind, it's good for the whole. It's good for you. It's good for other people. It's wholesome in that it uses all of our faculties. We, we're not giving up our intelligence on this path. We're opening our hearts. We're bringing our bodies. We're bringing all these things to play and really trying to sense into what is a wise response to this situation. So there's wholesome. And of course, that's also skillful. And we like skillful a lot in English because it's, it's really different from something like sinful, you know, or, or stressing all that self, somebody's to blame. Blaming and shaming is a whole important layer of not really understanding right view. Because if you're going to blame yourself for your conditioning, you know, you might as well blame the Big Bang, right? If you're going to shame yourself for not being able to change as fast as you want, same thing. Welcome to being human, you know? So it's, it's not skillful to do those things. It's skillful to look at, let me see what I can learn from this. You know, in that moment of action or in that moment of reaction, mindfulness and maybe right speech and compassion those qualities were just not developed enough the old habits were stronger and they got the upper hand that time but what but now you know now the conditioning web has changed because each moment it's changing by how you act in the present moment so each moment of wise intending in the present starts to slowly affect the whole web of conditioning and it may go differently next time next time if the stronger you remember what happened this time the more likely you are to have a, a little more space around it next time so in that way this conditioned view of things is is really important for right view um the unwholesome and the unskillful 
is usually summarized by the three words of the three roots of greed, hatred, and delusion. Greed is this grasping for really more than, you know, it doesn't mean you don't hold on to your glass of water or you don't reach for food when you need it. But this kind of unrealistic grasping, that's why they call it greed, trying to get more out of something than you can, and you, it's really going to give you getting more than you need. And then hatred, you know, if it's unpleasant, boy, we, we more than just say, oh, that's unpleasant. We begin to hate it and try to plot for its extermination. You know, that, that level of reactivity, it's hurting us and it's causing tremendous reactivity in other people and keeps the world spinning on in that direction. And delusion is not seeing clearly. So this comes back to the translation that Ying offered and one of you commented on a clear, clear seeing, you know. And another, that brings us, in terms of what is clear seeing, that brings us to the final aspect of uh, right view that I want to talk about here. Um, There are three perceptions that the Buddha highlights as being those that begin to shift, the more our view gets cleared up. So the clearer and clearer view we have, we've talked a lot about one of them, the more clearly we see suffering, the less we're fooled into thinking it's worth a lot of stress to get, you know, even more money or even more partners or whatever, you know, people accumulate. It's, it's not worth it. We clearly see the suffering. And the second one is that we begin, as we pay that clear and direct attention to what's happening, we see the constantly changing nature of things. You know, so we, we're less often fooled by thinking, if only I could get that, then I'd be happy forever, or that will last forever. Or we don't take our mood so seriously, because we know things are going to change. And at some very deep level, as we see into it, we really realize that it's not worth, nothing is worth clinging to. The pain of clinging, this extra clinging, clinging to the unrealistic is another way of putting it. You know, of course, if you're hanging over a cliff, you're going to cling. But clinging to the unrealistic expectations that you have out of things is unrealistic. Mental clinging like that. So it's a long exploration of becoming more and more sensitive to what is meant by mental clinging. You know, clinging, conceptual clinging. You know, thinking you understand what those people think because you put a label on them, for example. You know, and then they say something else. Or clinging to, I don't know, finding some way to get everybody to agree with each other. You know, may never happen. So clinging to all kinds of unrealistic beliefs and expectations is asking for suffering. And then the third S, so that's called that we have this insight about dukkha, facing dukkha, the insight about the impermanent, un, 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 uh, kind of unreliable nature of things we try to cling to. And the third thing is we begin to take experience less personally. And that really comes out of this web of conditioning where we're seeing that it's not me who wasn't able to do that right. It's that conditions did not support being able to do that right. And that does not mean they won't in the future. It means here's an opportunity to, you know, 
put some good into that network and see what happens in the future. Keep your eyes open. Keep paying attention. Right. So we take things less personally. We're not so oriented around judging ourselves as I'm stupid because I can't get everything to stop. I can't get suffering to stop. So there's something wrong with me. We don't do so much self-image maintenance. Like what does everybody else think of me? You know, we're not trying to keep up our appearances under right view. We're trying to really figure, see what's happening. You know, we're, we're less invested in making sure that we look good and more invested in trying to see, well, how are we? <laughs> and what does it take to really be good, right? We're not so much holding on to things as mine. You know, this is my success, even though probably hundreds of people contributed to it, something like that. Or this thing is mine. You know, it's yours temporarily. Even if you bought it, you're kind of renting it for a portion of your lifetime until it falls apart or goes somewhere else or something happens to it. So just much less focus on on that becomes natural when you see that what that does is add clinging and muck up the clarity of seeing the web of conditions and how you can work with them. So what this leads to, I like this uh, phrase from Ajahn Amaro. He talks about a disentangled participation in life. So we're not turning off life. We're not detaching. We're not, you know, just going to go sit in a cave forever but we're disentangling from all the ways that we're completely, you know, interwoven with what everybody else thinks and what everybody else thinks of you and what might happen and what did happen and what should have happened and all those things we do with our minds. We're disentangling, but we're still participating. It's so much easier and refreshing to be able to participate in life without all that entanglement. So I I often like to read this quote from uh, Henry David Thoreau, who's one of my favorite people. He says, I know of no more encouraging fact than the unquestionable ability of man to elevate his life by a conscious endeavor. It's something to be able to paint a particular picture or carve a statue and make a few objects beautiful. But it's far more glorious to carve and paint the very atmosphere and medium through which we look which morally we can do to affect the quality of the day. That is the highest of arts. So this points to the fact that this is like an art form. You know, we're gradually, gradually shaping this web of conditioning that we're a part of from our own little perspective on it. I love that he says morally, morally we can do because there is this deep relationship between what, we usually consider moral or ethical intentions, intentions of non-harming, non-greed, non-hatred that are woven into the path. And the beautiful thing to discover is this mutual relationship between what's good for us and what's good for other people. So on the path, we're breaking this vicious circle of reactivity in two ways with respect to what you might call incoming difficulties, things that life throws at you, things other people say and do, we're learning to suffer less, to have more equanimity, to be able to take it less personally, to let it flow through us without triggering a huge reaction. And then with respect to our outgoing actions of body, speech, and mind, 
we're working on our conditioning and our reactivity so that what we put out into the bigger web, not only the web of our own conditioning, but the bigger web of all the interbeing of everyone, what we're putting out is less harmful. And we give others the gift of space to feel a little safer and maybe they can be less reactive. And in that way, the whole thing can has the potential to turn into a more positive cycle instead of a negative cycle. And then when we really learn what works to transform the heart and mind of one person, namely ourselves, if the more we really understand that, the wiser we can be in our efforts to try to help other people change or influence what's going on in the wider world. So I hope that was a little bit clarifying about another way of understanding right view. It's working on this conditioning, working on our conditioning. So we have another breakout here, which, yeah, we can do. We'll just, we'll just do it and have a little less time at the end, or we'll have what time we have at the end for feedback. Okay. So Bruni again. Yes. So let me just send um, the prompt to everyone so that you see it too. I'm going to read it. So we'll go back again into groups of three minutes each. Please time yourself just to make it uh, simpler logistically. And the prompt is... Can you think of a time when shifting your perspective, your thinking, or your attitude towards some situation, you know, that time that you have seen that you have shifted your perception, thinking, or attitude towards a situation um, and has given you more ease um, even with circumstances staying the same, can you remember of one time? And so please share your insights on that experience, that experience of shifting, way of uh, looking at things, even when circumstances have not changed, conditions are the same, but your way of relating to it has changed. Okay. So again, three minutes each person, one person at a time, not crosstalk, bearing witness, okay. practicing mindful listening and mindful speaking. Okay. All right. So I think I'm um, ready to send you all to the rooms again. And so just hang there. Here you go. So, dear friends, we're back. And so now we have a few minutes here to do more harvesting, you know, to report back any kind of reflections um, on the groups um, and any other questions. Uh, but, if, you know, if you can share first, you know, what, what happened in your group, that will be great. Um, and any other questions are welcome to. And we have... Uh, yeah, we have some time. And yeah. so we can do that with, again, with a blue hand. That will be great. 
Wonderful. So Nancy, yes, please. Go ahead. Nancy Yamahiro, go ahead. Okay, thank you. Um, I just wanted to share uh, the incredibly um, personal uh, stories that people uh, shared about uh, their change of perspectives were um, some very tender, very personal uh, stories, and it was very meaningful to me. So thank you. Mm. Mm. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. You know, that just reminds me that I don't, I don't know if we spoke about privacy, but let's keep what happens here within, you know, within the group. So just, you know, respect each other's privacy here. Yes. And in that way, even cultivating even, even the, the safety and, and, you know, the, the, the container for us to be as authentic as we can and, and be supporters on the path. So uh, we also have, uh, let's say, uh, Christine was next. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Christine. Hi, thank you. I'm learning so much today. I hope I can remember it. I feel like I don't remember enough. I'm, you know, I'll watch it again probably, but, um, it was wonderful to hear people talking about putting on the brakes, you know, for the suffering. And for every one of us, there was a payoff for not continuing and escalating and adding the second arrow to the suffering. And I realized for myself that this didn't come right away. You know, I've been practicing this for a long time. And, and at first, you have to kind of slam on the brakes, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, and gradually, I mean, eventually I want to get to where I just don't have to put the brakes on, that things are just going smoothly. And as soon as I feel anything, I can just slow down instead of slamming on the brakes. And I also love the word that you used, harvesting, because I always think of things in terms of gardening myself. Mm -hmm. And that was a beautiful word. Thank you. You're welcome, Christine. Next, Bruni, Francis, have... Francis? Yeah. <coughs> Francis? Yes. Uh, there you go. Uh, for, for me, the change of perspective was on on this COVID-19, we were sent to work at home. And at the beginning, it was okay, I have to be here. But now uh, I changed the way I think about my coworkers. I like them more. Mm. I try to help them more. I try to be more intimate, less uh, just work more people and we've been able to share a lot of, of other things like family and dogs and and plants so I, I think that 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 forced change mm -hmm. not that that missing them 
uh, I was able to change that missing for what am I going to do? Mm. I'm going to, to try to relate more, even if by phone or, or computer. But mm. uh, that's a change that make my life easier because at the beginning I was just uh, angry because <clears throat> I, I, I had to be uh, away from them. Mm. Thank you. Thank you, Francis. Mm. Kevin. Hi. So one thing I noticed um, in our group was that um, after shifting perspective, we ended up taking things not as personally. Um, mm -hmm. And I think we did mention that. And I also put it together that um, with the two questions, uh, stop breaking for suffering and then mm -hmm. shifting pers perspective, I think um, it makes a lot of sense because they go for together. Because first you need to um, recognize and acknowledge the suffering and then um, try to change your perspective. Um, so, yeah, I just realized that and um, that was really nice. Um, my personal example of um, changing perspective was um, my mom nagging me. Um, before, it used to be a little bit annoying until I realized, well, someone helped me realize that it's an expression of love. So it went from annoyance to gratitude, just, you know, by that perspective. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, let's see. Um, and Susan is the next on the list. Susan? Yeah. Hi. Hi. Um, you know, we don't need to go into this too much, but I will say I did notice that sometimes, maybe in the past it was more helpful when I used the term pleasant or unpleasant when I went through an experience. But lately I'm like, I'm having a uh, back thing. I've had it now like three days, <laughs> normally very, but I sort of made this decision to not say anything about it in my mind and to really watch that pain when I'm sitting, you know, I notice when I sit back, it has a certain flavor. When I'm sitting in meditation, it has a certain flavor. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit, but I noticed when I label it unpleasant, a lot of judgment comes in. And that wasn't necessarily the case before. Maybe that was more helpful before, but now there's lots. So now I'm thinking maybe I just want to stay away from the whole pleasant, unpleasant, even wholesome. I've been saying to myself, is it useful? Is whatever thought I'm com is coming up, is it useful? You know, and I thought maybe, anyway, maybe that's too big of a subject or whatever, but it sort of came up today when we were talking about wholesome and wholesome. Pleasant, unpleasant, skillful, unskillful, that kind of thing. Thank you, Susan. And yeah, as we go through practice, we learn how it is that different words resonate and, you know, trust your practice and we learn what arises and how it is that we can practice uh, in a wise way. Mm -hmm. uh, Barry. Yeah, hi. Um Hi. <laughs> so it's it's great to be here and um I really did get a lot 
um, from the small group sharing of examples and stuff. And thank you to all those that um, I got to talk to, to, and I, I feel like my perspective is shifting constantly. Um, and, and the, the query was for around a, you know, a right view sort of positive outcome. And it's just, also occurring to me that my mind can shift in perspective to a negative wrong view very easily also. But um, I was curious to know if the, <laughs> the small groups were randomly put together because we had the same exact group uh, both times. And I was just wondering if that was a fluke or did you try to put keep the groups the same? So that was one thing I wanted to ask. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll jump in and say that I tried to create a different group the second time, but I didn't find the right option. So I tried to manually kind of a shuffle some people around, but there is a lot of groups. I may not have get, get around to kind of shuffle enough uh, in the groups, but the intention is to hopefully create a different configuration. And I have to look into this option next time. <laughs> Thank you, Barry, for bringing it up. Uh, then Sean and then uh, Jenja. Uh, well, I wasn't sure who was first. Um, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Well, I just want to say how thankful I am to be here. I'm up here in Canada and in our group, wonderful group, uh, right? Uh, we were talking about that. But what I wanted to share as I was listening to the other people share, what I found is both in the first breakout and the second, we all seem to come back to this um, examining the source of our suffering within, as well as applying compassion to ourselves, being overwhelmed by the world and, and all everything else. Uh, so just thought I might share that, that I thought I was alone in that, feeling demoralized and overwhelmed by all the suffering in the world. Um, and so uh, mm. yeah, we all seem to have a similar experience. Mm. Thank you, Sean. Thank you. And then we have one last person, and then we can move into... Um, our closing, just because I just called in, yeah. Um, so I just want to say two things really quick. One is that I love the word skillful because that, imp I mean, first it implies that, that you're doing things in a way that, that is appropriate to the task at hand, but also it implies that you can learn how better to do it because you learn skills, you build your skill set. Um, that's the first thing. And the second thing was really quick that uh, the rumble strip imagery was incredibly powerful for me and immediately it made I was like I've been driving on the rumble strip for two months like I need to get back in the middle of the road so that's all thank you very much oh thank, thank you. you thank you and it's just just wonderful to see you know all our community here and all these voices from different places, different experiences. So thank you. And now I will pass it to Ying. Right. So uh, in the spirit of uh, today's teaching uh, and the whole uh, path of um, practicing with a Noble Eightfold Path, we're practicing this not 
only for ourselves, but also for all beings, uh, beings that we come in contact with. And so in our uh, meetings together, we'll have this little ritual and to allow ourselves to maybe find ways to express uh, this inspiration. And so if you just like to uh, sit, uh, take a maybe a posture that uh, feels dignified and um, a sense of respect of the teaching and the fellow practitioners that all came together today. And if you wish to close your eyes, feel free to do so. And if this teachings and sharing discussion touched you in some way today, touched your heart, you felt physically in the body in some way, that is nourishing or maybe bring a sense of well-being, a sense of awe. May that bring benefit to you. And may this benefit that through this practice today and discussions, touch other people around you. Maybe just this 120 or so people, 30 or so people in the Zoom room today. May all beings in this room feel the benefit of the teachings and the practice And then allow this being a source of a wonder to touch all beings around you, your family, friends, your neighbors. Allow them to carry this nourishment and allow them to benefit all people around them. May the whole world benefit from this teaching and from your practice. Thank you all, everybody. And we will regroup next month. And take good care. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Maybe we can unmute, say goodbye. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Have a great month. Bye. Adios. Thank you so much. Love it. Wonderful to join people today. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye.